It's, uh, I know there seem to be very few people in church this morning, but you're very welcome, and it's good to have you. And uh, I'm going to read to you just a few uh, verses from 1 Timothy, um, chapter 1 and verse 12, as we get started. Uh, some of you may have noticed that I've got a smiley face looking down at me in this balloon. Um, we don't know how that balloon got there, but it's directly overhead and it is smiling at me, so I'm very happy about that. Um, so in, in our service today, we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we're, uh, there Paul defends his ministry. And uh, here in 1 Timothy, he's talking about the ministry that uh, God has given to him. And he's full of joy and full of thankfulness for it. I just want you to hear, in a sense, that tone uh, as I read a few verses to you. And then we're going to uh, bring a response to God in Here I Am to Worship. But this is what Paul says uh, about his ministry. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst but for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the keen, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So we stand to sing, here I am to worship, because that's a right response to someone who is so gracious and kind to us. Well, let's uh, talk to God now. Let's uh, pray. Father, we thank you for the example that the Apostle Paul gives us of somebody who was just overwhelmed by the reality of your love and your grace towards him. For that early part of his years, he was so opposed to the gospel, opposed to the church, uh, even complicit in the death of Stephen. And yet, Father, you spoke to him by coming to meet him face to face on the road to Damascus. And Father, his life was transformed by your grace and by your mercy. And so, Father, we thank you that he was able to say, now to the, own, to the keen, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And, Father, we want to echo those words because we see what you have done in our lives. Father, we thank you for the stories that each of us uh, who know you have of you having reached to us through some person or some situation that we were attending, and we heard the gospel, and we knew it was for us. And Father, in your grace, you invited us to come and give our sins to you so that you might give 
your righteousness to us. And Father, so we thank you for that exchange. We thank you for that moment of salvation. We thank you for that hope that we have in you. And we pray that as we do so, that as we remember those things, that we will think and remember how good you have been to us. And that we'll be encouraged that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So, Father, it is our privilege to come and rejoice in the salvation that you have given to us in Christ. And, Father, we want to say thank you to you for the week that we've had and, Father, for all the blessings that we have enjoyed. And, Father, whether it's been an easy week or a difficult week or a mixture of the two, you have been with us and you have encouraged us through your word and through the providences of the week. And, Father, we pray that as we come this morning that you will bless us in our service. We thank you for those who are leading us in music. We pray for Richard as he comes to speak now to the boys and girls. We pray that you will be with us as we hear your word preached, and that, Lord, that you will encourage us in this day. So, Father, thank you for this privilege that we have to meet in freedom and to worship our God. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, folks, if you have your Bibles, uh, do open them at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9. And uh, I think that's page 1100. And 49. So, First Corinthians chapter 9, and beginning at verse 1. Paul is in the middle of an argument here, uh, really about um, food sacrifice to idols, um, the freedom uh, to either eat or not eat, and uh, why he might do that. And as we saw last week, uh, really, the ethic is love. And uh, I, I want you to kind of listen out for that desire that he has for people to become Christians um, as he argues. Because he has his critics, uh, people who do not think that he's a very good apostle. Um, and we'll look at that a bit later on. So this is chapter 9, verse 1, God's Word. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus or Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us? as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk? Do I say this merely from a human point of view? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, Do not muzzle an ox, while it is treading out the grain. It is, about, is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us, because when the plowman plows and the thresher threshes, they ought to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? 
If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rights, and I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. I'd rather die than have anyone deprive me of this boast. Yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make use of my rights in preaching it. Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone who to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all of this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Amen. And we thank God for his word. Okay, Richard. Thank you. All right, for the four of you that are here. Yeah. Could I have slide one? Fantastic. All right, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. Uh, 24 and 25, actually, we're going to look at. A few of you may remember that I actually spoke about this these verses um, a couple of years ago, and I thought, should I speak about something different? And something happened this week that I thought uh, I would share with you in a little bit, and I thought, you know what, I will, I will, I will preach on these verses because they're great verses. Okay, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 25 says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Running is a metaphor. It's a picture. And running requires training, perseverance, and a goal to achieve. Could I have slide two? 
All right, so the first part is training, and we're going to do some stretches. So I want you to get up because we need to prepare our muscles. And if anybody else wants to get up uh, and prepare your muscles, that's fine. And uh, anyone who's pregnant, uh, perhaps you should speak to your doctor or minister before <laughs> undertaking any of these exercises. So stretches. Let's go to screen uh, slide three. Um, the first stretch we're going to do, yeah. now we're getting ready to run. So we're going to stretch up. So stretch up. Oh, touch that sky. Oh, you can feel it. And the older you get, oh, the better this feels, I tell you, the better this feels. Okay. Now we're going to stretch to the side. And what, what we're going to do is we're going to Put one arm over oh, and stretch. And I tell you, when I was your age, this did not hurt. This did not affect me at all. <laughs> and when the coach was groaning, I was going, what are you groaning for? Oh, stretch. Oh, can you feel it? Oh, I can. All right, now we're going to do some twists. So we're going to twist around, twist around. Oh, great. Love seeing some more up there. Oh, come on, Ricardo, you big wuss. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's touch our toes or as close as to our toes as we can. Who can touch their toes? Yes. Anybody touch their toes with their, with their, who, can you touch your toes with your knuckles? What about with your fists? Can you touch the ground with your palms? Oh, my goodness. That's a stretch. Oh, stretching is good. We need to prepare our muscles. Um, all right, now, next, next, oh, sit-ups. Uh, oh, hands and feet. So with hands for running, what we're going to do is just twists around like this. Five one way and five the other way. Ooh, I like seeing some people who are sitting doing that. That's a good one. There's another good one while you're sitting as well. We're going to do feet now. So one foot at a time, and you're going to, Twist the foot around. Sorry. Um, <laughs> twist the foot around in a circle. And then go the other way. Five on each side. You can do it in your chairs. That's all right. Yeah, I'll do this so I don't fall over and look silly. Now, do the other foot. It's good stretching. We have to warm up our muscles before we do a run. It's very important. Now, besides that, let's... Uh, Let's do some sit-ups. So um, shall we pair up? Pair, pair, pair. And uh, each person um, get down and do sit-ups. And the other person, the pair, hold their ankles so they can do the pair. Why don't you guys go a little over there so you've got some room. Go over a little there so you've got some room. Three sit-ups and then switch over. Now hold their feet. Oh, that's good. All right, let's go, Miguel. All right, Mateus. Did three. Tricky, tricky. I'm glad there's no pair for me. <laughs> All right. Now, let's, let's go, Elena. Okay, everybody did that? All right. No, don't give Elena support. Support, support, support. You got to watch out for your teammate, which we're going to talk about in a moment. Very good boys. Very good girls. All right, now we're going to do some push-ups. So get a little room. 
And we're going to do push-ups. Uh, five. Is five possible? One. Two. Three. Four. Oh, I'm feeling it. Five. With a clap. That's maybe too much. Maybe too much. All right. We've worked. We've prepared our muscles. Now we also have to prepare our minds. Next, next stretch. So for preparing our minds, uh, we, need to, we need to kind of get ready for the run. And when we get ready for the run, we want to see what, we want to picture in our mind what the course might be. So next slide. Um, we have to picture the, the kind of terrain that we're going to be running on. Sometimes it's going to be nice and smooth. Sometimes it's going to be a little tricky to get some tread. Sometimes it's going to be a little tricky because it could be trippy. And, uh, and so we want to picture that. Next slide. Okay. Love that. Run with a purpose. <laughs> run like you stole something. If you stole something, you better run, baby. You better run. <laughs> uh, so you want to run with a purpose. You want to know, you, you want to know why you're running and you want to, and you want to go. Uh, next one. Follow the signs. It's important when you're running to stay on the right track because if everybody is going on the, if, if the road bends to the left and you go to the right, you're off the course, you're no longer in the race. Um, you're, you're just some person who uh, looks like they're, they're lost. So you want to follow the signs. Now, I'm, if you can't read it, it says, I trained for months to hold this sign. And don't stop, people are watching. Which is great. Okay. Um, you want to encourage others. Always give 100%, except when giving blood. <laughs> All right. You want to encourage your teammates. And then the next one. Keep going with the end in sight. Hurry home, mama. We're hungry and dirty. <laughs> All right, and I think that's the last one. So, 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 so we have an idea about when we're running, we want to prepare our minds and our bodies for the course, and we want to keep going to the end. We want to keep going, and um, that's a, that's a lot like our spiritual uh, our spiritual run as well, because our spiritual run with 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 God is not just a sprint. It is a long distance marathon. And what's great is we've got so many people in, this, in, in our congregation who are testimonials of long distance running. And we can look at them, these older men and women in our congregation, and see that they've been running with Jesus all their lives. And it is such an encouragement. This week, I was speaking to a lady in her 70s, and she brought up these verses. She brought up about running for the prize, and she had such a passion for running with, with God, staying with God. She had such a passion and desire to win that prize. And here's a woman in her 70s, and I thought, oh, I love that. I love that. You know, when, when you see somebody um, who's in a sport and, and their passion for the sport is encouraging and inspiring, you know, sometimes you, you'll, be, 
you'll be cheering, sometimes you'll be crying, sometimes you'll just be caught up in emotion. And we should be like that with our walk with God as well, that, that it is something to cheer for, and it is something to cry for, and it is something to be full of emotion for. And it's just wonderful to see, for me, this woman in her 70s who had the passion of wanting to, to win that prize, keep going, going, going to win that prize. And I want to encourage you guys to keep going, going, going as you're just starting your journey to keep going, going, going to win that prize. And it's a long distance run. Guys, you've been fantastic. Uh, we're going to sing a song and then we're going to do a Father's Day thing uh, for all the men. So everyone have a, have a stand up. And we'll... Father's Day, by the way, uh, to all the fathers among us, and uh, it's great that we've got this little presence as a reminder of that. Uh, wasn't Richard a really good personal trainer? Actually, do you know that there's a job, Richard, in the Oroctus for a personal trainer? It's offering 40,000 euros a year, I think, and uh, there's only one TD that goes to the gym every day. So, uh, so there's a job for you. It's guaranteed for three years. So I read about that in the paper this week as well. So boys and girls, I think you're free to go. And uh, then we will stay here.
Um, so yes, just we're having Sunflower Crash and K2 if, if the folks are there. Folks, let me just go through these announcements. Uh, if you have your order service there, can I, I say that you're very welcome. It's lovely to see you in church. Um, we did start on time today. I know we don't always do that, um, but just to let you know, that's why we, were, um, we got through the service before some uh, people arrived. Um, we're going to finish uh, out our series in Corinthians uh, for this section next week. We'll look at chapter 10. Uh, that's really the conclusion of his argument here from 8, 9, and 10. And uh, you'll, you can read about that uh, if you've got time through the week. Uh, we have prayer ministry at the front. Uh, so if you would like to be prayed for, uh, do come to the front. Uh, the moderator's appeal, this was, uh, as I said last week at the General Assembly, we raised over four, uh, one million uh, pounds um, sterling for good causes in the Presbyterian Church in Ireland. And uh, we had two appeals. Uh, the second one was for the Cyclone Edie, uh, which hit the uh, sort of eastern and southern part of Africa and Malawi and Zimbabwe, in particular, we have workers. And our contribution to that was €4,310. So thank you for that contribution. It was part of that much bigger uh, donation that went to Tear Fund and to Christian Aid. Uh, just in number six there, the Children's Church. Um, if you look in the back, you'll see the details of the summer services. Uh, ACWJ means a conversation with uh, Jesus, and we'll be looking at those. Um, it's, it's an informal service. Uh, I will put the radio mic on. We'll come away from the uh, pulpit. We'll make it informal. I'll keep it to one hour. Um, I'll break up the talks as well so that the boys and girls can interact with that as well. And, and I'm really looking forward to it. I hope that you are too. I hope that, uh, that when it's summertime that you won't stop coming to church. If you are on holiday, that you will go to church there as well. Um, and I did want to, I, both Karen and Carl are not here at the moment, so I can't really, I don't know if we have a full compliment. For those who have already volunteered to look after the three to eight-year-olds, thank you for that. And we need, I'll check with Carl and Karen to see if we need any more as well. If English isn't your first language, you can see that you can sign up to our ARPC, subscribe at googlegroups.com, and you will receive a copy of the sermon on Sunday morning uh, before you come. Uh, we've been asked to, uh, this is a, an outside announcement, uh, this is for Mount Tabor. Uh, the Presbyterian Church is involved in Mount Tabor, though it's primarily run by the Methodist Church, and um, they're looking for a pastoral care worker. I did have a quick look at this. It's really for a chaplain, uh, and you need a theological degree, or you need to have pastoral experience. Um, but really, it's the chaplain there. Very good job. Um, and I, if anybody is interested in that, uh, do have a look at the website uh, as well. Uh, so again, just good to have you. Uh, we have a visitor from Korea. He's made himself known to us. He's an elder in a Korean church there. He tells me that they have over a thousand at their church. And uh, you're very welcome, and it's lovely to have you and anybody else who's visiting as well. So as we prepare for God's word, let's sing how great... Oh, sorry, I have two. Yes, sorry, sorry, sorry. Look, yes. So we were out yesterday. Karen and I went out to say Nemes and uh, Hayani, and this is baby Nicholas. And he was born uh, slightly prematurely, and uh, that's why he's quite small. But he's hungry and thriving, 
and both uh, parents and baby are doing very well. And anybody remember this man? Yeah, this is Jerry. So Jerry hasn't been at church for a good while, but he's keeping well. And it was his 80th birthday yesterday. And uh, as you can see, Myrtle was very good in organizing um, a party with a cake. And it was good to be there. So we give uh, congratulations to Jerry on his 80th birthday. I think that's all that I have. Okay, let's sing uh, as we worship God. How great is our God? It becomes... Uh, believes they are protectors and even guarantee human happiness and freedom. So human rights are important for the common good, to have concern for others. But the problem with, with rights has been, particularly in our individualistic thinking, that we have this idea of competing rights. So that's why we've had this conflict between recently between the mother versus the baby. The freedom of conscience versus the protection against discrimination, which was prominent both in the abortion debates that we had in our state and also in the Asher's Cake case in Belfast. Human rights assume a higher authority, an external source, which usually ends up in society by being the courts. But Christians, of course, recognize that God and his word is our higher authority. We have rights because of God, but we submit ourselves to him. So the church recognizes the right to life and the resources to sustain it, because life is a gift from God. It recognizes the right to human dignity, to receive proper respect, irrespective of age, gender, rank, or race, or in any way that we define human beings. It recognizes the right to justice, which is in essence the right to equality, for all are created in the image of God. And it recognizes a responsibility to secure, protect, and establish the rights of others because rights exist on, uh, in the mutual relationships we have with others. And this reflects us being created in God's Trinitarian image. And out of this relationship of mutuality, Christians are trying, challenged to love God and our neighbor as ourselves. So we say that there are human rights to dignity, equality, and human responsibility. And that all came from the Blue Book and our recent uh, debate about human rights. But if you look in your passage, you'll see that in verses 4 to 6, that Paul defends the rights that he has as an apostle. He claims three rights there. Firstly, in verse 4, the right to food and drink. Secondly, the right to a believing wife. And third, the right to material support and not have to work. And he claims those rights, by the way, from the local church. He's saying, as a, an apostle, I should be able to eat and drink uh, from your uh, giving to me, I should have the right to have a believing wife, and I should be able to have material support. And so he begins his defense, verse 3. This is my defense. But just in giving you a quick summary before we look at this, he doesn't exercise those rights, as I said, in verse 12b. You see there he says, but we did not use this right. In verse 15 he says, I have not used any of these rights. In fact, 
He goes the other extreme in verse 19. He says that he doesn't live in his rights. He lives as a free man, but as a slave to everyone in verse 19. And if we're to understand why he would do that, I want you to keep in the back of your minds that it is because of the Christian ethic of love. We looked at that last week in chapter 8. Paul's love for Jesus, his love for the Corinthian church, is really humbling. And his purpose, as we see in verse 23, is that he does all of this for the sake of the gospel. He does it, verse 24, so that he might get the prize. And we'll see what the prize is as we go through. So love trumps rights, and love is the Christian ethic. So I just want to take us through this. If you look at uh, this idea here, we have, yeah, Paul's defense is the church. He has these three rights. But I just want to go back to verses 1 and 2, first of all. Now, this is a, a strong argument. I'm going to try and take you through it quite quickly. And then at the end, I hope that we'll be able to apply it. So hopefully you'll be able to stay with us on this. So he asks a a series of rhetorical questions, doesn't he, in verses 1 and 2. The answer to every one of those questions is yes. And his defense is simply the church. When he looks at what God has done, in other words, saving people from their pagan past, from their unbelief, and seeing them come to Christ, uh, not because of his power, but because of his preaching, he realizes that that is what makes him an apostle. And what he has done is just been preaching Christ and him crucified, as we saw in verse two and chapter two and verse two. He talks about them being his seal. You see that uh, you are the seal of my apostleship in verse two, and a seal, of course, was a stamp, and they are his credentials, a stamp of belonging and of ownership. Now, the question you might be asking is, why are they so critical of Paul? And if you've been remembering what we've been saying, it's because he was an unimpressive speaker in terms of the Corinthian uh, thought of uh, rhetoric. He wasn't very good-looking, Paul. He wasn't a tall man by all accounts. He wasn't strong. He was weak and sick. And they didn't quite think he fitted the bill of someone that they should follow. The fact that he didn't take payment that he worked in a lowly manual job, that he didn't actually keep the Jewish customs that annoyed the Jews, that he was weak in his conscience and wouldn't eat in the temple because of other Christians who found it difficult, annoyed the Gentiles. And he wasn't very expressive with the gifts of speaking in tongues and other things, as we'll see later on. And this led to real criticism of him and judgment of them. That's what he says in verse 3. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment of me. This man, Paul, he cannot be an apostle. He's unimpressive. He doesn't speak well. He does things that I don't think are right. And most of that opposition, as we know, came from within the church. By the time of 2 Corinthians, it comes from those outside of the church. And we get a glimpse of that in terms of verse 2. I may not be apostle to others. So they may have been already influenced by people outside. So Paul is in a tough spot. People are not really accepting him as an apostle. And this is his defense of his gospel. 
He says he has those three rights, as I've said. Um, I was fascinated by the idea of a, a believing wife, of course. And uh, there's a lot of uh, talking about this in the commentaries. You could read that up as well. Because he's really saying there's something that perhaps many of us in Ireland find difficult if we come from a Catholic background, um, the idea of the Lord's brothers. Were they to have, where, did the Lord have brothers to Mary and Joseph? And were they able to take wives? Well, we think the Bible says yes. Uh, the Bible in Mark chapter 6 and Matthew 13 talks about the Lord's brothers being James, Joseph, Jude, and Simon. And it also mentions sisters that Jesus would have had. We would have said they were like half-brothers and half-sisters. They were uh, the products of the relationship between Joseph and Mary. But the question here is, did they have right of support? And Paul says that they do. Peter obviously had a wife. Um, and the point is that the church then must support the wife. And that's a debate for another time. He's saying... If I have a wife, you as the church should support your wife, the wives as they did with these others. So then he goes on in the next stage. If we look at, uh, where are we, 7 to 14 there, he talks about the five reasons for these rights. And that's a, a long thing. I'm not going to spend long in that. But he, he says the reason that I should have these rights is, firstly, it's just common practice. A soldier, a farmer, a shepherd can take the support from their labor. You wouldn't expect uh, a gardener who grows apples to go down to the market and pay for the apples that he had supplied to the market. He can eat those apples in that way. Secondly, scriptural uh, precept, verses 8 to 10, the oxen not being muzzled. I actually struggled a little bit with this in light of our culture and the whole idea of animal rights and etc., etc. But I just want to say two things about this. Firstly, it doesn't mean that God isn't concerned for oxen or isn't concerned for animals. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? The answer to that is no in, in one sense. But the reason that he's saying that is because he's not addressing this to oxen. God is not speaking to the animals. That's what Paul means. He's speaking to the Israelites. And they are the ones who are to care for the animals. So is this spoken to them? Yes, it is, but it's not spoken to the oxen. And secondly, he writes this in, in view of the last days, verse 10. Um, surely this was written for us. This was written for us. In other words, what happened in the Old Testament, in Paul's view of the Old Testament, is written so that we might learn from it. That's if you look at chapter 10, for example, I don't know if you have to turn the page, in verse 11, he says exactly that. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. We live in the last days and we are the ones to whom this is saying. And so the, the idea of this is that the, the animal that works should be able to eat the person who works should be able to eat, and the apostle who works should be able to eat. That is why God put that there in the Old Testament. It has scriptural precedent, reason number two. There's an intrinsic justice about it. We see that in verses 11 and 12, uh, just that it seems right to us. If, if, you, if you do the work, you reap the reward. We understand that. Verse 13 is about Jewish custom. 
Again, you understand that because if you know your Old Testament, if you've read Leviticus chapter 6 or Deuteronomy chapter 18, you know that the Levites were the priestly tribe, and they didn't actually get a wage. They didn't have any, they didn't have any land. And what they were to do was to take from the tithes of the people and their part of the sacrifices as well. And therefore, they, in this precedent, uh, got their reward by working in the temple from the temple. And lastly, it was the command of Jesus. If you remember that when Jesus sent out the twelve on disciple, uh, disciples on their first mission, he said to them, take no cloak, take no purse, because when you stay at someone's house, they will feed you, and then you take from them what you need, and then you move on. And so he has those five reasons to say that he has the right to the rights that he has already spoken about. But then, if we go on to the next slide, he denied himself these rights. Verses 15 to 18. God has this amazing purpose for Paul's life, which he informed him about at the moment of his conversion. It's an amazing verse, really. If you, and maybe it's worth going back in Acts chapter 9 and verse 15. And if you look at that, it says, But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man, that's Paul, or Saul as he was then, is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. And so Paul is told, this is the purpose of your life. The purpose of your life is to be a teacher, a preacher, someone to take the gospel to the Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel. And as you read through Acts, that's exactly what happens. He starts in the synagogue to the Jewish people. He's usually thrown out. He then sets up with the Gentiles. And eventually, because no one would listen to him, he is forced to go to Rome. And in that way, he talks to Agrippa, Festus, and probably to the Caesars. God honored what he was doing. That was his passion. That's what I really learned from this passage. And you see that in verse, uh, the idea of preaching in these three verses. It's mentioned six times, which is really the telling of a story. It's not what I do, per se. It's what you do whenever you teach about Jesus, when you speak of him, when you mention a Bible verse, when you share what you believe with others. And he has this passion. It's a task entrusted to him by God, verse 17. He was compelled to do it in verse 16 because it was his call from God, and he decided that he would take no payment for it. Those he has already persuasively argued, he has every right to do so. And that's why I started with 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to following, because I was really impressed with how much in love Paul was with his God, how much he understood what Jesus had done for him. And that's, he understands this deep desire that God has that everyone would be saved. He appoints Paul as a herald of the way of salvation. In that First Timothy passage, he talks about Jesus as being one God, the Son of God, the mediator who gave himself as a ransom for everyone. And Paul took this seriously. It informed his thinking. It motivated his behavior. He denied his rights so that he could be a herald of of the gospel. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. It wasn't a burden. 
It was his responsibility and it was his joy. And then if you go in his argument, you see his argument is building, verses 19 to 23, he used his freedom for the gospel. He was free, really, to live in the way that God wanted him to live. And he wasn't living as a Jew. He didn't have to live as a Gentile. He was living as the Lord's person. And whenever he talks about winning people, he's really talking about salvation. Uh, You see that in verse 22. To the weak I became weak. To win the weak I become all things to all men or all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. In other words, winning is about salvation. And what fascinated me here, and this is where I think we could spend a long time in this, is that he accommodated himself. That's that word. So he kind of changed his tack, didn't he? He was prepared in certain circumstances to reject customs that were associated with Jewish and Gentile behavior. So he He kept law sometimes. He circumcised some people. He didn't circumcise others. There are lots of examples that we could look at, but I just want you to get the idea that he modified his behavior in terms of religious sensitivities, the Jews and the law, yet he wouldn't break the law per se, and he denied himself for the sake of those whose consciences were weak. So he could eat meat, he said, but he wouldn't eat meat because he was concerned about what it would say to others. Because deep in his heart, he's concerned about how people might hear the gospel. His ethic was love, his purpose was the gospel, and he always did so with the utmost integrity. As one commenter said, evangelism with integrity, relationships with adaptability, and personal holiness with single-mindedness. I want you to get the idea that he did this for the sake of the gospel that he might share in their gospel, in their understand, in their in the in their blessings. And lastly, if we go to the next slide as well, I think there's one more. He then has this personal uh, exhortation from the Isthmian Games. Um, Richard has already kind of illustrated that for you, but the Isthmian Games were second only to the Olympics. They were held every two years. They involved running boxing, jumping, wrestling, discus, and javelin. And what is fascinating is that Paul was probably there in AD 51, because that's the timings that he was in Corinth, and that is the timings of the Isthmian Games. And not only that, he may have been busy because there were no accommodation for the athletes and all the thousands of people who came into Corinth, and he was a tent maker. And he made, probably made lots of tents for them. And he was part, as it were, of the whole idea of the Isthmian Games. And the idea is straightforward, isn't it? Athletes train hard and participate in a single-minded way to win a crown. This crown, by the way, was supposed to be made of wood and of pine. And it, was, it would not last. And Christians are spiritual athletes who work hard and with discipline to win the crown that will last, or the prize that will last forever. And what he's basically saying is then that we're not to be a runner who has no view of the finishing line and wanders aimlessly, or the boxer who poses and shadow boxes without landing a punch. You get someone who says, yeah, I'm a good boxer, but they've never landed a punch on anybody. He says, you're not to be like that. That's not what you do, because you have a purpose. Your purpose is Jesus. Your purpose is the gospel. 
Your purpose is to win people. Your purpose is to be in heaven. And it's fascinating, isn't it? Because it changes how you live. It changes how you view rights. It changes how you live your life. It changes how you view your religion. It changes how you do work. It changes things because you have this great purpose. So what's the prize? Folks, the prize, I think, is the, is the people. The prize, as he started off with, is the, is the church. He is concerned that people would know Jesus. His life is lived so that people would know Jesus. He will not do sinful things because he doesn't want to be unholy. He will not offend them because he doesn't want to, you know, hurt them. But he, you know, that is how he lived his life. The blessings in verse 23, I think, are the blessings of heaven. Verse 25, he talks about the crown that will last. And that makes us think, doesn't it, of heaven, things that will not perish and fade away, a new, a new body, a new earth, a new relationship with Jesus seen face to face. That is the prize. And it's because he has this sight on this prize that he lives his life in this way. You know, you, if someone's training for an event, you know that they give their life to that. You and I, the Bible tells us, are training for heaven. And it should change the way we live. So that's the prize. People being saved. The gospel being spread. People from all nations coming to know him. And the joy of seeing Jesus face to face in heaven forever and ever. And then he has this very strange thing, and I just want to make a comment about it in verse 27, because he says, so that I will not be disqualified for the prize. Folks, it cannot mean that he won't get to heaven, because that would render most of us disqualified. And it goes against the clear teaching of Scripture that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. This is not about losing salvation. What I think he's talking about, and the commentators would push in this way, is that he's talking about failing to honor Jesus with the life that we have been given. If you go back to chapter 3, these are very telling words as well. And you look at verse 12, he uses a different metaphor, the, the, the metaphor of building. He says, If any person builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring to it to a light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it's burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. It's hard to say it, isn't it? But Paul was afraid of disappointing Jesus. He was afraid of Jesus saying, you haven't done well. He was afraid of saying, you haven't given your life wholeheartedly to me. And it was that that gave him the discipline. Not that he beat his body physically, but that he was disciplined in how he lived his Christian life. It's amazing, isn't it? 
And so he concludes his his defense, doesn't he, in verse 27, I am an apostle. I love Jesus. I love the gospel. I love the church. And I'm prepared to be disciplined. And I'm prepared to give up my rights. And I'm prepared so that I might tell people about Jesus. And I want to say to you folks that as I apply this, that I have found this deeply challenging. We sing, isn't it, how deep is your love? And we're thinking about Jesus, but how deep is our love for Jesus? Are we like aimless runners? Are we like boxers who pretend? Are we basically flabby, unfit Christians? What is our prayer life really like? How is our hunger for the word of God shown in our lives? How do we exercise our spiritual gifts? How is the church, what does it mean to us? What is the quality of our relationships with one another? How deeply do we desire to speak of Jesus. Paul concludes his argument in chapter 11 and verse 1. He says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And folks, I know that when I say that, that you can feel guilty. And I really do not want us to be guilty in that sense. But I do want us to understand that we do love half-heartedly. And that our love for Jesus has a long way to go and to grow. I want to say to you folks that self-effort walking out of this building will fail. You will only become discouraged and harsh and critical. But what you need is to know the love of Jesus in your hearts afresh. You need to understand his grace and his love. So that you will be encouraged to love and to good works. We need more of Jesus. That's what we need. And when we do, then we will begin to live more, as Paul did. My second application is that this is a tremendous, and we must think this through, and I, I think this is a challenge to me as well. How do we live in a multicultural community where we have to communicate the gospel to the Jew and the Gentile, the believer and the unbeliever, the critic and the acceptable, all of those things. It's just hard work, isn't it? And I think what I've seen in this is that Paul doesn't change the message of the gospel. He holds to the gospel. He preached Christ, and he preached Christ crucified. He kept to the script. He held to the idea that all have sinned, and that all are in danger of Christ's judgment, and that God had rescued us by sending Jesus as a ransom. That is offensive to some, but it's the gospel. But he does change how he lives. He adapts himself to the socioeconomic, religious, or non-religious groups that he speaks to, and that is the challenge. And you and I need to debate how we might do that and what we need to change, both individually and as a church, so that we can reach the group's that are around us and the culture that is there. 
he realizes that the gospel is not about certain behaviors. The gospel is not Jewish. The gospel is not Gentile in that sense. The gospel transcends them both. And so therefore we can be Brazilians and we can be Irish. We can be nationalists and unionists. We can be educated or uneducated and we can be part of this church because those things are subordinate to the reality of who we are in Christ. And there's a tremendous challenge, isn't there, folks? And I think this is huge in our culture because what Paul demonstrates here is a selflessness and a lack of individualism that is endemic in us. He is living for the other. And I think, lastly, we need to note the primacy of evangelism. What is the mission of the church, Kevin DeYoung asks in his book, And I think we see here that ultimately the mission of the church is to see people everywhere come to know Jesus as Savior and to live with Jesus as Lord of their lives. That does not mean we don't do good works or that we do not reach out in practical ways. But the prize is to see them come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Folks, this is a challenge to us. It's a challenge to me. And we need each other if we share in such a task. We need more of the love and of the grace of the Lord Jesus if we are to run and to win and to get the prize for which Paul so well lived. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for the love of Jesus and for his willingness to leave the glory of heaven and to come to earth, to suffer and to die, because he loved me and he loved this church. I thank you for the Apostle Paul, who gave up his rights to all of the things that we've been talking about so that he might have the opportunity to preach the gospel to the Jews and to the Gentiles in the city of Corinth. And Father, I pray that you will challenge us as we think about what you have done for us in Christ and the knowledge you have given us this morning of the Apostle Paul, that we might deny ourselves and that we might live for him and for each other so that we might see men and women from all over the world come to know Jesus in this church. And we pray for your glory and for your honor. Amen. Well, folks, let's uh, offer, uh, give our offering to the Lord now. We're going to sing a song as well, which is called, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me. This is a song that someone sent me this week, and I've already shared it with some of you. It's really, I find it quite a moving song. Um, I know the folks have been practicing it and have enjoyed it. So uh, just sit and enjoy. But if you do know it, as soon as you can pick up the tune, just sing along with them. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Let's pray as we pray for others. Father, we want to give thanks for Leo and for Liddy and for the work that they're doing in Porto. We pray for Leo particularly today as he helps in leading the services as James and Heather are on holidays. We pray for him and Pedro as they speak about Jesus to the folks there. We pray that you will bless them. 
We thank you that you have been helping him in his studies and that you've been particularly with Liddy as she has been working in the restaurant and has made good contacts and is speaking to her friends. We pray that you will bless them in their work there. Father, we thank you that we can pray for those who are doing exams. We remember Caitlin and Callum, Raphael and Mia and Ethan. And we thank you for the help that you have given them to date. And we pray that you will help them to finish well in this last week of exams, that you will give them strength and concentration to the end. And Father, we pray that in this, their relationship and their dependency upon you will deepen and develop. Father, we thank you for the seaman's mission. We thank you for Jay and Dublin and Colin and Cork and Sam and Belfast. And Father, we thank you for those stories that we heard of people, men and women, coming to know Jesus for the first time. And we pray that you will sustain a deep love for Jesus in Jay and the other workers on a daily basis. We pray that they will indeed be diligent and hardworking in making contact with the different ships and the seamen that come to Dublin port. We pray that you will be with those who have recently come to faith, that they will continue in the way of Jesus, that they will be discipled, and that, Father, that they will be an ongoing blessing to those that they work with and to their wider families. And, Father, we pray for the mission and for its board and for wisdom and for finance and for all the needs that they have. Father, we pray for our our sick and those who are weak or elderly. We pray and thank you that Annie and Rebecca are making progress. We pray that they will be encouraged now as they begin to uh, improve again, that they will make Jesus central in their lives, that they will be encouraged to follow him more diligently, that they will be hungry for more of him and his word. And that, Father, that because of your goodness and your help, that you will spur them on in life and service. Father, we pray for those who are elderly and frail. We pray that you will be with them and help them not to despair. And Father, I pray that we will remember them well, that we will pray for them, and that we will be patient and loving, that we will visit and that we will care. And Father, we pray for those who work for us in society. We think of our government We pray for those in our health service, in law and order and justice. We pray and thank you for the service that they give us. And Father, we pray that you will sustain them in the work that they do. And Lord, I pray that you will help us to be neighborly. In a world that's increasingly individualistic, we pray that we will learn to look outside of ourselves, that we will say hello to those who live next door, that we will seek ways and pray for those that we maybe don't even know. And I pray that you will help us to be neighborly as well in work and in other situations where we more naturally, perhaps, develop relationships. And Father, we pray lastly for those who are on holidays. We thank you for this opportunity that we have in these months to take time off from work. And we pray that you will give uh, those that have that opportunity, that you will keep them safe, that they will be encouraged. And Father, that we will remember this promise. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, that we will find our rest ultimately in Jesus Christ, and that, Father, that we will be encouraged in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Well, let's uh, stand and finish our service by singing this great hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. With these words, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen.